mesmo sentido. Welcome back to the AIAC podcast. I am William Shockey and you are listening to Africa's a country's premier destination for analysis, commentary and discussion on global events from an African and left-wing perspective. Do make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow Africa's a country on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. And most importantly, check out africasacountry.com for new writing and analysis. So if you missed our episode last week, it was a great interview with Tim Sahai from the Green New Deal Network on the future of non-alignment and third world solidarity. And one thing we discussed was whether the new president of Brazil could emerge as the de facto leader of a new coalition of non-aligned states. So, as we all know, last year, left-wing veteran Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva defeated right-wing Jair Bolsonaro in historic election for Brazil. The victory was slim. Lula amassed 50.9% of the votes to Bolsonaro's 49.1%. And Bolsonarismo, which is the term used to describe adherence to Bolsonaro's crackpot ideology, which blends neo-fascism, evangelical Christianity, and neoliberalism, was far from repudiated. And lo and behold, a week after Lula's inauguration, which happened on the 1st of January, and for which Bolsonaro was absent, on top of even failing to concede a defeat in the first place, on the 8th of January, Bolsonaristas stormed the country's main federal buildings in the capital, Brasilia, in what many are calling a coup attempt akin to the US Capitol riots. Bolsonaro, for now, remains in self-imposed exile in Florida. I'm sure you've seen the photos of him playing video games, eating KFC, and just generally looking miserable. And Lula's government is proceeding with the rest of those who bear responsibility for the failed putsch. But the question now is, just how much of a threat to Brazil's democracy is Bolsonarismo, and how can its wide cross-class appeal be explained? Will Lula be able to govern in spite of the country's ongoing legitimation crisis, the contradictions of his own broad coalition, and the pressing challenges the country faces, such as food insecurity and climate change? For our series on Latin America last year, Sabrina Fernandez wrote before Lula's victory on Africa as a country that the challenge then is at least threefold, to elect a progressive government and maintain power, to fix recent losses in a short amount of time, and to propose more ambitious politics that can win the people over. So, for this episode, I decided to chat with Sabrina to discuss the prospects and challenges for Lula's third term and whether Lula can lead a strengthened effort for progressive third world internationalism. Sabrina is a sociologist, eco-socialist organizer and communicator from Brazil. She's currently a postdoctoral fellow with the CALAS at the University of Guadalajara, working on just transitions from the margins, and is also the person behind the radical left education project, Deseonze. So here is my interview with Sabrina. Enjoy. Joining us on the program is Sabrina Fernandez. Sabrina, thank you very much for making the time. Thanks, Will. It's a pleasure to be here. I was part of uh, writing. I wrote a little bit for Africa as a Country last year, so it's nice to be on the podcast as well. Yeah, it's it's great. And I mean, I'm going to reference your, your piece a lot, which was about how Lula could set the bar higher for a new presidency. At the time, we were all hoping that he would win. 
that came to pass. He has one that was a, a watershed moment for the left internationally, but it hasn't been without its own problems. And the one key event I want to talk about, which happened fairly recently, was what occurred on the 8th of January when Bolsonaristas, uh, supporters of ex-President Jair Bolsonaro, effectively stormed federal government buildings in Brasilia, the Congress, the presidential palace. And this has invited a lot of comparison to a similar event we saw in the United States of America two years prior when on the 6th of January supporters of Donald Trump stormed the US Capitol. Now, on the one hand, one doesn't want to concede the analogy because it just feels like we're giving America too much centrality when it comes to interpreting world events that may or may not be similar. But it does seem incredibly similar, especially considering the level of coordination, the ways in which a lot of it, the mobilization happened was through conspiracy theory, different social media channels and so on and so forth. So could you walk us through what happened on that day? And since that day, has there been any action taken to hold those responsible accountable, which is something we haven't really seen in the January 6th incident in the United States? Yes, yes. Well, um, the temptation to draw the comparison is, is actually um, part of the reason why we're using this, because Bolsonaro was drawing the comparison. When the uh, invasion to capital happened and later on, like there's been a lot of movement coming from the Bolsonarista camp in terms of thinking of these people uh, on Capitol Hill as heroes, like they were standing up because Biden stole the, the election and things like that. So that kind of narrative actually went from the U.S. into Brazil, and there are connections between Bolsonarism and uh, Trumpism. They are not just in terms of, well, they look alike. I am very, I like over the past years, I resisted a lot this um, practice coming from international media saying that, for example, that Bolsonaro was a Trump from the tropics. Uh, this is a little too much for me because it actually denies the roots of Bolsonarismo. It denies uh, its own uh, particular characteristics, uh, especially because, well, for example, in Brazil, we're talking about the role of uh, fun uh, fundamentalist religious positions with the evangelicals in Brazil. This is a lot tighter and the role of the military in Brazil, the fact that we came from the military dictatorship, but also the, the very fact that well, we're talking about a country in Latin America that has been subject to imperialist interventions and influence for a really long time. So I, I find that sort of comparison between Trump and Bolsonaro to be a little shallow. But the events of January 6th and then January 8th, they do have similarities in the, in the sense that the people involved in Brazil drew inspiration. That was a conversation. But then we have big differences here. I think the major difference is the fact that, well, Biden was not yet president in the U.S. Lula was already president in Brazil. Lula had been president for a whole week. So the way that the state responded to the situation mattered a lot. And in the case of Brazil, it took about three hours for, for us to get actual federal response into it. Uh, most of it, we understand that was due to a delay at the local level. So the government of the federal district uh, you know, where, you know, the capital Brasilia is, 
it is a Bolsonarista government. So the like I used to live there. So the the governor uh, Ibanez Rocha is well known for for being Bolsonarista. Uh, he's very rich. Uh, his police is actually very uh, ruthless towards uh, protesters. Usually, again, I've been there. <laughs> so the situation is quite bad usually, and the police was basically just escorting these. Uh, protesters that were actually calling attackers and invaders nowadays. Um, part of the Brazilian press uh, has been calling them terrorists. Uh, I resist uh, this um, naming because I think there's quite a difference between what was happening uh, since uh, Lula got elected and January 8th in terms of the levels of action planned by these people. So as soon as Lula got elected, a bunch of them started camping in front of army headquarters, and I'll talk about the, the role of the military in just a second, and they started blocking roads and doing things like that. At this point, this is actually not quite different from things that the left would do in terms of action, blocking a road uh, in order to apply pressure. The difference is the content, right? So in the fact here, this is very anti, uh, an anti-democratic content, alleging uh, fraud when there wasn't fraud, things like that. And then we started getting um, to a more complicated scenario. So, for example, uh, in December, so when Lula was getting certified uh, by the electoral court as president, uh, there was like an amount of bolsonaristas in Brasilia as well. They started setting random cars on fire and they uh, set for example, bus on fire and they wanted to put a bunch of um, kitchen uh, like kitchen gas tanks close to the bus that could have caused like a horrible explosion in a place where there were a lot of hotels, right? And it was close to the hotel where Lula was staying and working. So this starts escalating. And then we found out about plans of bombs uh, to explode the airport in Brasilia and other calls like that. That's something that we can classify closer to terrorism. Uh, what happened on January 8th, it was an attack. They destroyed everything. Uh, but also we have like we had a pretty excellent team of workers uh, led by Lula and, and the first lady as well, Janja, who put most that they could together again. But there's a lot of like a lot of loss. Right. So we're talking about millions of reais and like pieces of art that can't really be uh, fixed in that way. But so there were attackers, but the role of the military here is important. And this is something that uh, Lula is finally making moves on. Uh, at first, there was this trust that, well, these people might come in and they might do something. Well, but the local government's there, the police is there, the army is there. They're going to uh, work on it. That's in fact not what happened. I have been to protests in Brazilian countless times in my life and we can't get close the way that they got close to the buildings. Um, there, there weren't enough uh, uh, police people there, and uh, the, the scenes were actually quite pathetic, if, if you look in that sense. Like, we have scenes, for example, of, like, cops just sitting around buying coconut water when people were just doing whatever they were doing. So it took the federal government a while to finally click in and say, oh, wait, we need to intervene. They're not mm -hmm. going to do this. So then they issued, like, a decree for federal intervention, uh, in the security area of the federal district, and that means this is still ongoing, 
And then they were able to actually bring enough of uh, security force to be able to drive the people aside. They arrested a lot of people right away. So there were about 1,500 arrests and the people started getting uh, processed. There's still uh, some people who have gone already into the, um, into the penitentiaries in Brazil. Others are under home arrest. So there's been a lot of stuff going on in relation to that. But what matters re he really here is like the people who were calling the shots. And here we have another difference between the US and Brazil. Uh, Bolsonaro was actually in Florida. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so like Bolsonaro was actually not there and he wasn't really calling in the sense that this is a coup, we're taking over because I'm the rightful president of Brazil. He didn't do that. There, there, actually, we didn't have like any proper leadership calling mm. into power. So again, I resist calling this in um, like uh, an attempt at a coup. Probably a lot of them thought that, well, we're going to take this back, but without like a proper leadership and a hierarchy here saying we're going to hold on to this power. I think the, it's, a, it's, a, it's more like wishful thinking, the sense of saying, yes, we were attacked and a coup almost happened. Mm. It could have almost what, happened, but. What, what explains that? What explains Bolsonaro's very subdued response? I mean, he was alike to Trump in the sense that after Lula's uh, election, he didn't outrightly concede um, defeat. He was not present for Lula's inauguration, didn't participate in the handover and the symbolic transfer of power. But even given his absence from all of the processes which would mark the transfer of power, as you said, he's been hiding out in Florida and kind of in semi, uh, in, in self-imposed exile, quite pathetically sort of playing video oh, yeah, games. The, the photo of him eating a KFC during Lula's <laughs> inauguration, what was that? Exactly, exactly that. So this is not someone who is sort of in the in the wake of defeat, rallying his forces for, for one final push. He just seems sort of drained of, of any of his energy and, and vitality. Uh, and yeah, what, what explains that? You know, there was a lot of talk prior to, to Lula's victory that Bolsonarismo was going to have this resurgence um, after Lula would come to power. Um, and January 8th seemed like it was an indication of that. But since then, given just how quiet Bolsonaro is, it's hard to, to gauge whether he himself wants to <laughs> have a legacy um, once his presidency is ended. He kind of seems like someone who just wants to live out the remainder of his existence, playing video games and eating KFC. Well, I think uh, there is a point here again, like in terms of a difference between the US and Brazil. Uh, Bolsonaro has committed so many crimes of all kinds that he's really afraid of being arrested. This is the main thing. And if he does get arrested, uh, probably his whole family is going to get arrested too, because they've all been involved uh, in different levels of what has been happening in Brazil. So we're talking about corruption scandals here. We're talking here right now, there's a very strong conversation in Brazil around the crime of genocide against the Yanomami indigenous peoples. Uh, uh, the way that the Bolsonaro government handled the situation. Some people have been calling omission. For me, it goes beyond omission. It was on purpose, the things that they were doing in order to benefit illegal mining in the, in the region, uh, um, mostly illegal mining connected to, to gold. And 
So he's really afraid of like being taken to the courts, not only in Brazil, but also outside of Brazil. And obviously, there are some people who have made claims that, for example, if Bolsonaro goes back to Brazil and gets arrested, this is going to awake a lot of these other Bolsonaristas who are going to think, wow, this is really unfair, and they're going to take it to the streets again. But the fact is that we find that Bolsonarism is still strong in terms of a percentage of people. Like I wrote a short piece uh, for NACLA on this that we were looking at some of the, the polls right after January 8th in Brazil. And they're still not just like um, complete full support for what happened, but people are like, yeah, it's kind of justified, right? Because, you know, maybe maybe Lula didn't really win the elections. So these level of skepticism, you know, the doubts that were sold in Brazilian society, this is quite strong. So like my main concern is that we still have um, a lot of depoliticization around the elections and this uh, lack of trust uh, in Lula as a legitimate president. I think this is something that we need to worry about because this goes beyond this very radical Bolsonaristas. And mm -hmm. we do understand like Bolsonarismo as a phenomenon is already, you know, radicalized. Uh, it has roots around Nazism. It is, uh, <laughs> it has conversations around eugenics, all, all sorts of things like that. But the level of action that the supporters are willing to, to engage with, uh, to engage with, this obviously differs. Uh, so like some people are more fanatical and the level of fanatism, it varies from like how, um, how involved you are organized within Bolsonarismo, uh, but also people who have been completely affected by this mentality over the past years and they are vulnerable and you have like big people from agribusiness, um, you know, business people in general, like providing financial support to people who were camping in front of these army headquarters. So uh, we have like reports of people who actually like got evicted from their homes after the election because they stopped paying rent. They moved to the front of these uh, headquarters. They've been camping out. They have nowhere else to go. So this level of vulnerability, the the impact in terms of like, you know, cognitive capacities even even they're like psychologists working on this right now so there are a lot of elements here that show that bolsonarism is still quite pre present but the level of support and penetration is fragmented and it's not enough from what like for what bolsonaro hoped in order to hold on to power uh to just claim well this is a fraudulent election i'm going to stay he actually never conceded he never made a speech conceding. He was not there for the inauguration. But for example, right after the invasion, he went, he went on and he posted some tweets. And uh, he, he actually said, well, the current chief of the executive of Brazil, Lula. So he's coming into terms with the fact that he's no longer president of Brazil. But then it comes to the point of the military. Uh, the military is key here because a lot of the power that Bolsonaro drew was from the military. He put a lot of key military people within civilian posts in government. Uh, he understood that the heads of the the military in Brazil, like if we're looking to the armed forces in general, they were with him. In fact, uh, there have been tensions in the past. We know that the armed forces in Brazil are not completely Bolsonarista, but the Bolsonarist ideology is strong. Uh, but there were tensions like a couple of years ago when Bolsonaro was already fighting with the Supreme Court that we got reports that when all of the chiefs of the armed forces quit at once, it was because Bolsonaro was asking them to fly a fighter jet 
very low and close to the Supreme Court in order to break all the windows. That kind of stuff, right? Um, but it means that Lula has quite a tough job dealing with the armed forces right now. His defense minister has been very criticized, José Múcio, for not properly taking a stance, uh, being kind of treating the, the camps as, you know, they're just there, they're protesting, not treating them as anti-democratic forces. But Lula still thinks that he can work with Musu around this, but he's been making changes. So he made a change uh, in terms of like the chief of the of the army in Brazil. He actually fired a lot of people recently. So there are certain things happening, perhaps a little slower than what people expected, like after January 8th, how bad it was. But things are ongoing. And it, I, I feel like Lula is trying to thread the waters carefully here as well, because he knows that he doesn't have enough support uh, in the military. And he knows that he has to win Brazilians over as well. Yeah, by yeah. saying, yes, I am your legitimate president. I am going to govern for you all. And these were fair elections. Actually, we should actually make a point. They were as fair as we could get in terms of winning, but well, Bolsonaro tried to steal this election all the time, right? So it was a very tough campaign for us. Mm -hmm. and makes the makes the victory all the more sweeter in spite of how narrow the margins were and i think you've you've raised an important point now about how lula still has to win over brazilians because i think all of these events feature in this long-standing legitimacy crisis that brazil has been undergoing for for the last 10 years or so and lula's ride to power wasn't as emphatic as I think we'd all hoped. And he has a very difficult task ahead of him. Um, the, the Workers' Party only controls about 12% of the seats in the lower house of, of Congress. And Lula himself relied on quite a broad coalition in order to get to where he is now. That includes uh, his vice president, who is a former right-wing governor of, of Sao Paulo. And it includes this motley bunch of fellow socialists, um, centrists, um, and so on and so forth. So he does have quite a difficult task ahead of him. Um, do you think his mandate is clear? What is his strategy entering this presidency? What kind of agenda for reform is he pushing? As you said just now, he has to tread cautiously. What does treading cautiously mean as far as Lula's plans for the presidency. Yes, well, uh, the presence of Alckmin there was very bittersweet for us on the left, having to deal with him, especially those on the left from the state of Sao Paulo uh, who had terrible experiences with Alckmin and with Alckmin's police. <laughs> so, um, but there was a, like this general understanding that getting rid of Bolsonaro was the most important point. And there, there are claims on the left within the Workers' Party, um, you know, friends and co comrades who have said, well, it's not that we went to Alchemy. Alchemy actually came a little bit to the left. Uh, we're going to see how that works. It is actually like a huge comeback for Alchemy in the sense that he was mostly forgotten and now he's vice president of Brazil. Um, but Lula had a, quite an interesting program for his campaign. Like I actually did like a live stream with people reading point by point. It was built by many hands for sure, because there are contradictions in the program. But I could tell, for example, like uh, contributions around the environment were actually 
good contributions coming from social movements, coming from like eco-socialist collectives. So there were some really interesting things here, there that I think Lula is looking to work on. And we already see a difference here in the way that he built his uh, ministries. So uh, we have from like the Minister of the Economy in Brazil as Fernando Haddad, who ran uh, for president in Brazil in 2018, lost um, against Bolsonaro and ran now as uh, for a governor of Sao Paulo and well, didn't win, but is a very strong presence and like being there. And this is a name that goes against the big neoliberal names that the market would expect. Right. So like naming Adagi was already a way for Lula saying, I'm going to do things differently here as well. I'm going to treat social spending as investment. I'm going to uh, have a different perspective on like what we're going to do in terms of like uh, money, like raising the minimum wage and things like that. So uh, Lula right, signals certain things there where we now have like proper ministry for human rights and a minist uh, ministry for uh, indigenous peoples and uh, sports and culture, everything's very different in that sense. But at the same time, the ministry for tourism and communications, like there are sectors that Lula just handed out to a party that we understand to be like on, closer to the far right. In fact, it was part of the Bolsonarista camp before. And this helps you explain as well why Bolsonaro is feeling a little weak is because Lula actually made deals with some of his friends. And some of his friends came over into the government. This is bad for us, but it's also bad for Bolsonaro. Lula's actually quite skilled at this game, but mm. obviously this game leads into a lot of vulnerabilities, including the fact that over the past years, these vulnerabilities helped some of these people get more empowered. And then they worked on um, a coup against Juma Rousseff, against the Workers' Party. So you guys got to be very alert on this. But we already see that we're, like, we're not even a, a month into the government yet. And we see so much of a difference. For us, more on the radical left, the socialists, like it's, uh, we have to keep track of how we're feeling about this all the time because we know there are a lot of contradictions. Lula still has a project around class conciliation, but it just gives us you know, a little bit of hope when we're seeing that when institutions are working again and wow, they're worried about people who are going hungry. And I remember having a conversation with a dear friend uh, last year about this, that if Lula were, was able to get Brazil on track on at least three things, I think uh, we would make enough of progress to justify alchemy and dealing with these contradictions, which is fighting hunger in Brazil, which is one of our main concerns, you know, food insecurity, something that's plaguing about half the country. Uh, and we're talking about 30 million people actually going hungry in the country. And then the situation around nature and the environment. And that's not just about the Amazon. We already, we already see like huge difference in terms of budget, in terms of like empowering uh, the um, environmental institutions within the state around it, changing the narrative away from ecocide. We are going to deal with the contradictions around green capitalism. They are making their way uh, into the government already, but... It's not just like upfront ecocide that was before. And my third point is that Brazil was becoming very isolated, even though it's a huge country in the region. 
and we needed to get internationalism back on the table and we needed to get Latin American integration back on the table. And the past week, well, that's what Lula has been doing, working on Latin American integration and it's actually been beautiful, like from, from like when we compare to how things were before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, as your, as your article touched on, the bar was, was so low, but even in spite of the bar being so low, I think it's impressive the advances that he's been able to make over the past month. But to what extent is are his plans going to be constrained by the state of global political economy? Um, when Lula was president uh, in his first two terms, Brazil benefited from a commodities boom, which facilitated its high growth rates and the ability for the state to invest tremendously in social spending. Um, And at the moment, as you're describing, Lula still has plans to invest in social services and um, expanding welfare access. Uh, But it's a very different world from the world of of 15, 20 years ago, um, in the sense that um, economic prospects globally are are, are pretty bleak. Um, And given the current crisis of inflation around the world and the tightening of monetary policy in the West, that might have a bit of an impact um, on, on Lula's plans. What, what kind of growth model do you see sustaining um, this presidency, especially since it, it cannot be a growth model that um, is, is too reliant on, on mineral resources because uh, we're facing um, accelerating climate change and we want to get off the ecocidal track as you'd just described. Um, but then how does how does one generate or try to generate some kind of economic growth in these pretty uh, restrictive conditions? Well, one thing I know for certain, I wouldn't like to be in the Ministry of the Economy right now in Brazil because they are dealing with, uh, like, it's almost like the epicenter of all the contradictions because we need money for, for this social spending. Uh, and, well, there's not enough in the budget. One of the reasons uh, for this is that uh, right after the coup against Yuma Rousseff, Brazil was put into a situation by Congress of direct austerity, right? So basically they froze spending for 20 years um, and this is actually piling up. So it's getting worse year by year. So the challenge that the government has right now is to deal with the legislative on this because this austerity ceiling can't stay there forever. Um, and so like that, even if you do have the, the funds, you're not able to spend it. So this is one of the main problems right now. Uh, Something else that's on the table, like they're working on actually um, reforming the tax system in Brazil. It is quite a regressive tax system when we think of the taxes on consumption and the actual tax brackets uh, that impact a lot from middle class to the lower classes. So they want to work on that. During the campaign, Lula talked about taxing the rich. So taxing big, big wealth. So this might come to the table, but they're like, I'm going to give like another example here of how hard it is for them to manage these contradictions in their, in their own program. Something that Bolsonaro did uh, during his government, especially to try to win over both the middle class, but also, for example, the truck drivers that 
in Brazil, like they're quite important in terms of like they block roads. They do tend to have like a more reactionary uh, perspective. Most of them were with Bolsonaro. It's basically like he took away the tax from fossil fuels uh, within Brazil. So uh, this is something that the Lula government had to deal with right away because this measure by Bolsonaro would expire at the end of the Bolsonaro government. And then the Lula government was faced with the question, do we renew this or do we say, no, we need to go back to taxing um, uh, diesel and gasoline because, well, the funds are ginormous. So we're talking about about. 52 billion reais, there's a lot of money in one year. Uh, and also the fact that if you're talking about energy transition, if we're talking about uh, fighting climate change and making big, beautiful speeches at the UN, like Lula did at COP27, it's kind of complicated if you're just saying, well, we're going to keep a gas, a gasoline and, and diesel uh, and fossil gas, we're going to keep everything tax-free, right? So like not even the conversation of introducing, changing the tax system to introduce more like a carbon tax and pegging some of that income from this carbon tax to put towards transition and things like that. So this conversation led into a lot, a lot of infighting, like the journalists kept reporting on this like the first week of government, government nonstop. And that was like the first big battle that the Minister of the Economy lost because Adagi wanted to start the tax and other camps within the government said no. Part of this because they were, they were afraid of uh, truck driver mobilization, like stopping the country. And I, I absolutely understand this concern. I think it is a real concern. But I also think now we're like three weeks into the government. We can go back into this conversation of saying like you maybe shouldn't renew this forever. We need to get these funds rolling. So they are going to, like, over the next few months, they're going to have to look into a lot of the actions that they were taking to not poke the bear. Let's not poke the Bolsonarista bear. Let's take it easy. But you can't do this forever because then you're actually fulfilling their wishes. You're making it easy for them. And you're not going to be able to do the things that you promised people you would do. So that this is going to be a very complicated year for the government actually to set the tone of like how they're going to do things. And I think this is why mobilization from social movements, from labor unions, from the other parties and, and collectives in Brazil, this is quite important because if we don't apply pressure as well, all the pressure is going to be coming from the right wing. Nothing's going to change. Mm. What What is the state of social movements, trade unions, and uh, the different constituent parts of the left in Brazil at the moment, um, you know, part of part of how this entire mess began is that the left, as it has been in every other part of the world, was significantly demobilized, uh, dejected, defeated, and divided. Has Lula's presidency provided a, a unifying uh, locus for for the left, um, or? might it only start to sow divisions further as these contradictions unravel and, and you know, the, the main task of preventing uh, another Bolsonaro presidency has been achieved, but when in power, the task of, of governing is, is beset by, by many perils and contradictions. Oh yeah, we're still dealing with the demobilized left. Uh, we're still dealing with people who vote for Lula, 
uh, who are against Bolsonaro, but they're not organized. They're not, you know, in, in militant circles. They don't consider themselves to be activists. They just say, well, now it's the job of the institutions to do all of these things. And uh, there's a tendency right now uh, to uh, have demobilization go into uh, this certain level of saying, well, but we, our people are in power, right? So our people are in the ministries, they're in the cabinets, they're like in the secretariats, they're going to fix things. So like uh, Lula did this in the past. It's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like if you're going to have uh, people working, for example, uh, around right to the city, in your, in your ministry for housing, well, you should take people from the social movements who are close to everyone, who have been fighting on the ground, who know who, who are real specialists here. But this can't be understood as a way that, well, now we don't need to apply pressure from outside anymore. Uh, I'm, I am unsure, to be quite honest, how most of these movements are going to react right now. I understand this is a moment to show support for some of the actions, but we're going to have some very tough fights over the next months and mm -hmm. years as well. And this means that we need to be able to rally people to the streets. How the Lula government reacts to this is going to be quite important. If the Lula government reacts to people taking to the streets as, oh, this is a protest against the government, then it's going to repeat mistakes it, it made in 2013 in Brazil, in 2014 in Brazil, that's about um, saying that we have nothing to do with the streets anymore. We have nothing to do with this type of radical actions of occupations. And I understand that, for example, the landless workers movement, which is still one of the most relevant social movements like <laughs> in the planet, actually. Uh, the landless workers movement is a movement that did go through a level of demobilization during the first Lula mandates. That, no, we're going to negotiate a grand reform here. And then that are being very slow. So keeping certain actions, especially actions that are not actions that deal with the executive, but that are about applying pressure to ju the judiciary, applying pressure to the legislative, and going after private companies, applying pressure against capital, these actions should be at a, like an all-time high anyway. So this is something that we're going to see over the next months, like reaching that point of equilibrium, how you do that. But I understand like Juma Rousseff has, uh, people over the years have always asked the workers party in Brazil and Lula, you know, like the PT needs to work on his own self critique. Uh, so, you know, like the things that they did wrong and we don't usually get that from like the big names in the PT and we don't get this from Lula. Lula has actually made jokes saying that if people keep asking me to do that all the time, I'm not going to be able to actually do the things I need to do. <laughs> and he, he's kind of resistant to this, but there's been changes. For example, some of these big developmentalist projects uh, that resulted in a lot of environmental damage and also uh, like very bad social impacts. For example, the Belomonte Dam uh, in the state of Pará and the impact on the Xingu River Basin and what that means for, for the people, the people's indigenous and traditional communities living alongside the Xingu River Basin. This is something that Lolo said, yeah, we shouldn't repeat this anymore. Um, but I am unsure of how this actually gets into when we look into like the development projects in other areas, right? Sometimes you say, well, because Belo Monte was very famous, we're not going to do a Belo Monte again. Yeah, but there, there are no plans for something like it anymore. 
So we need to get people to understand the patterns itself and not just one thing that they did wrong, that they can't do the exact same thing again. But Juma Rousseff, on the other hand, has been going about for two years in terms of like self-critique, things that we did wrong. While we fought the coup in the wrong way, we looked into like institutional powers uh, when we should be looking to the people, mobilizing people around that. And she's been making claims that, well, there's no democracy without popular organization. So we can't say that we're taking the country back uh, into a path of democracy by defeating Bolsonaro if we don't let popular organization flow. And this is really good. And uh, particularly for us, like in the socialist camp, uh, it's good to have Dilma Rousseff saying this because at least the people who are more like in the petista or like a social democrat camp, when they're like, wow, mobilization is going to lead into another coup, very simplistic, reductionist kind of perspective, uh, we say, well, but Dilma Rousseff thinks it's really important to keep mobilizing. So it's good to have her as a partner here. And I've been, I was very critical of the way she handled uh, the coup crisis from 2013 until 2016. Uh, it was something that I felt like it was very focused on the institutional powers. But I'm glad that Juma is very critical of that nowadays too. So um, uh, I have I have a feeling that we're better positioned this time around to mm. tell Lula and tell the people in government that we can just keep demobilizing people and saying that the government is going to handle things by themselves. The government needs people and like take into the streets, but also criticizing and saying, well, this is wrong. We don't want to go in that direction. Mm. And then part of that work of, of mobilization and popular organization is trying to win over Bolsonaro supporters. And I'm just curious to know what is the appeal of Bolsonarismo to sections of the working class, uh, the urban poor, and, and constituencies that, as you were saying earlier, have been deeply and profoundly affected by Bolsonaro's policies. The vivid example you gave, which is sitting with me, is folks who've been evicted from their homes, but then go out and camp on the streets in support of, of Bolsonaro. Um, and the temptation often is to dismiss this as an example of false consciousness or people being duped um, by misinformation. Um, but that can't be the full explanation. Um, and as you were saying earlier, Bolsonarismo is, is, is complicated because it's not exactly a coherent ideology. It draws from different influences, evangelical, Christianity, uh, neoliberal kind of hustler, individualism, so on and so forth. Um, how, what is going to be the challenge to try and win people over away from that? Um, and and what, is a, what is a strategy to do so? And why uh, were people, why did people find it compelling in the first place? I mean, part of the answer, as you already alluded to, is, is depoliticization. Um, but in the wake of that depoliticization, how do you make the argument for, for policies which now might seem counterintuitive or against people's immediate interests or, or simply impractical as a lot of left-wing proposals come across? I have a, a certain, well, my, my general perspective here, well, is that 
there are two things that we can do. One is working on politicizing people towards class consciousness, away from the far right, becoming more progressive people in terms of their values. This is ongoing, very hard work, right? So we, we need to do this. this. This is part of how the left organizes. But I understand that some people, we're not going to win over. We're not. Uh, partly because um, there's like this certain level of like cognitive dissonance that's quite common here. Like campaigning, this becomes quite obvious, right? We would talk to people and they would give us like easy answers that made absolutely no sense, but they believe that like so deeply in their hearts. Uh, something that I tell them, like if I say to them, no, don't worry, if we have more LGBTQI plus um, uh, rights in the country, that, you know, that doesn't mean that the children are going to be threatened. They're not going to believe me. That's not how it works. But the fact that we did have enough of a majority to win, and we are in power right now as a general left with a very broad front, uh, like um, given that contradiction right there, means that we can do things that in the end, reality will prove people wrong in their fears. And I think we need to be a little patient with that. We're not going to like rescue all of the Bolsonaro supporters at the same time. Um, the country's very split. It's almost half-half. Uh, when we... Uh, when like when we knew that Lula was going to go into the second round, uh, we sat down and did the math, and I was like, "Yeah, he, we need at least a two million uh, difference in terms of like votes here." And this is what we got in the end. This this is what we could get in that very short window. Um, so the country is still very split, and but it's split among different lines. So some people are not that much with Bolsonaro; they're just not with Lula. They're not with Lula. They have this very strong anti-PT sentiment, anti-Lula sentiment. They believe that Lula is corrupt, that when he went to prison, uh, he really did all of those wrong things. They don't believe uh, the fact that he got uh, actually like, um, um, like uh, absolved in, in the judiciary process later on. So dealing with these people is different from saying that, well, they support everything Bolsonaro do. So there's a difference between like the Bolsonaro supporters and the known Lula supporters. And there's also a difference within the Bolsonaro supporters with like Bolsonaro supporters and Bolsonaristas. So we need to have different strategies there. And I think the hardcore Bolsonaristas, we need to worry about them, about them in the sense of growing. You know, they're still, you know, influential. They have like this huge network for fake news and they talk to people and they spread hate. We need to worry about that in the sense. And they're, in their anti-democratic endeavors. I don't think we should be focusing on pleasing these people. Oh, no, come to our side, we're not that dangerous. No, come to our side, uh, you know, we actually agree with you on certain things, like, you know, not having abortion rights or things like that. We shouldn't do that at all. This is a this is giving in and it's going to further empower them. So they should they should only be our focus in terms of, you know, their anti-democratic senses and the danger of growth. And then that leaves us about maybe 70% of the Brazilian population. About half of that, you know, like half of the population sort of with Lula. So we need like, you know, to actually reach a third of people who are here lost in between with, you know, like a fra fragmented consciousness. I think it's more of like a better term. You know, mm -hmm. it's very fragmented. They have different positions on, uh, on random things. And they're very influenced by the media. And they're very influenced by fake news. And one of my main critiques of the Lula government so far, uh, I know it's been three weeks, but it is our job 
like those of us who work on analysis and who get to see things from outside and not from within the government is saying, well, you're going kind of slow on this. This should be one of the priorities. And one of the priorities is actually getting ahead of the fake news. Uh, we've spent the past three weeks fact like fact-checking agencies, communicators, and random people online everywhere all the time saying that, oh, yeah, you heard that the government did this. No, that's not what the government did. The government did something else. So we're reacting all of the time. And part of the lies that are actually being spread by the, the press as well. So the fact that the Ministry of Communications is with the, with the far-right minister is already really bad news for us. Uh, the Secretary of like, Communication for the government itself is with the Workers' Party, like great people like Paulo Pimenta and everything. But I don't think they have been empowered enough to do some of the things that have to be done. And I believe that this government needs to work on like a big task force on informing people of what the government is going to do before the government does it. You know, so like getting ahead of the, the narrative, getting to the specifics. And like we had this big example uh, just recently on the situation around the common, common currency in South America and how it was a disaster everywhere because it is a disaster. The Financial Times covered it wrong. Like most of the press in Latin America covered it wrong. And like the other day, I'm in Mexico right now. And the other day I was just like listening to the radio and like random commentators on the radio who don't talk about politics, saying things they don't understand about the common, common currency and all also feeling this conversation with anti-communism because then they say, oh, the problem is Cuba and Venezuela. It's like Cuba is not even part of this conversation. We're talking, it was like a South American <laughs> currency conversation. So they lost control of this. Uh, and um, it's something that for me, is like one of the examples that this is something very complex. If we're talking about like a common currency, that's not like the euro at all. That is about facilitating certain transactions between our big commercial partners in South America. Like Argentina is our biggest commercial part partner in South America. And we want to do that without being held hostage by the dollar exchange rate all the time. Well, makes sense to have this conversation. But this is still like a theoretical conversation. Like there was an article that the minister Adagi published with his uh, exec executive uh, secretary, uh, Galipulu, like last year on this. That's interesting to talk in terms of like South American integration, but there are a lot of like specifics that would have to be uh, worked on. It wouldn't be something for now, maybe in two, three years. So a working group would have to be developed on this. So it was something like very, very, very simple that they lost control of mm -hmm. in, in, the, in the meantime. And then it went to the press and then all like, there was like this panic, this panic around it. But you know what's interesting here? On January 8th, I was in Brasilia, and before they stormed uh, the, 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 the three main buildings there, I went into their march, like just driving. I wanted to, to like, kind of stuff. Let's check out what they're secretly a Bolsonarista. <laughs> no, uh, but I, I, was, I, was, I was very well protected. Uh, so um, I was like driving alongside. It was very long and I could see that the, the, the cops were very friendly to them and that there weren't enough cops. So this was already a point of concern. But I wanted to see what their signs were. Their behavior was very erratic. 
like they would like be um we would drive by and they would just like be like banging on the cars and like come over and things like that and there was one sign against a common currency in latin america in january 8th so before this conversation hit the press before this conversation uh, got out of control because, you know, the finance minister in Argentina said something and there was like the SALAC meetings right now. This was already going around as a source of panic within the Bolsonaro circles. So for mm -hmm. me, this is like a main, main point that we need to get ahead like by months because they actually do their research. The people who are building this, this kind of level of distrust they do their research. They pick every single line, every single thing that people in government right now say, and they distort it and they send it out before we before it actually becomes part of the mainstream conversation. Mm -hmm. So the, this is like people are like, oh, yeah, only three, three weeks is only the first month. Yeah, but this kind of seems like it should have been work for like as soon as the <laughs> we knew we, we got elected, we need to work on a task force for this right now. And mm. the whole of the left needs to be involved in this, not just the government. Mm. I think it's, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's fascinating to think that uh, the Bolsonaristas were one step ahead on the common currency and, and would oppose it. But I think what that raises, which is something we haven't spoken about yet, is the role of the West in all of this and international capital. And the sense you even got just reading the mainstream Western press after Lula's victory was that the politically correct thing to say was to embrace Lula's presidency. Um, but a lot of them were, were secretly very uncomfortable and unsettled. And you one detects that they might have preferred uh, another Bolsonaro uh, term, which even for all of its uh, political um, erraticisms uh, was largely favorable to, to, to foreign capital. So I wanted to, to talk about how Lula's plans for Latin American integration, um, including the common currency, uh, forms part of his, his foreign policy. What, where do you see his foreign policy going? Might it, as we all hope, um, help cement uh, a much stronger third world kind of sensibility uh, across the global south um and is is that something he's planning on and and what does that mean as far as brazil's relationship to to the west um vis-a-vis -vis the china russian axis might it pivot more in one direction might it pivot more in another direction or might it choose to to stay neutral and and rather leverage that position for its own interests I have the sense well, that uh, the market forces in general uh, did, weren't very happy with Lula winning, but they weren't also that excited about Bolsonaro because Bolsonaro really did mess up many times in terms of um, uh, how badly he handled some of the situations as well, right? So that's the fact that he handled the pandemic in, in Brazil as badly as he did, like amounting to these many deaths in the country, was also bad for the economy. So there were some concerns about Bolsonaro. They, they would have wanted, you know, a third candidate uh, that was more aligned uh, mm -hmm. with their perceptions. That didn't happen. So they're kind of like swallowing the pill of Lula, but they're already applying a lot of pressure. And some of the reason for this is that I think that Lula winning, Brazil being as big as it is in terms of 
territory, amount of people, and the, the, the size of the economy in the global south itself means that Lula is holding quite a lot of power in his hands. And when you look in these conversations around the cell, like Brazil going back into uh, these association for Latin American countries. Uh, CELEC is a way of like standing uh, its own ground against other powers as well. So it shows that conversations aren't going. And there was like this beautiful photo uh, of the CELEC meeting in Argentina and like all of the presidents right here and Lula in the middle like this. <laughs> so like thumbs up and yes, and like I'm back. <laughs> it was basically like that. And it means a lot because Lula is very skilled um, in terms of like, not just a politician, but almost like a diplomat as well. And he's not going to have like a, a, a standpoint against the US and the European Union in the way of like some um, leftist anti-imperialist would hope in Brazil, like he's going to negotiate, uh, he's not going to be denouncing everything, but he's very strong on the point of uh, self-determination and sovereignty. And he made a beautiful speech talking about ending the blockade against Cuba and against Venezuela, that Brazil is going to reestablish uh, diplomatic relations with Venezuela. We're going to have a full embassy of Venezuela in Brazil again. Uh, this is very powerful in the region. Brazil doing that is very important. And so I think Brazil, Lula is putting Brazil back um, in the game of non-alignment. And that he's made a lot of points around this in terms of like Russia and Ukraine before. Uh, so being very critical of both sides, but also saying, well, this, this, uh, we're Brazil, we're not going to intervene in this situation here. Uh, and we need to talk about the actual powers at play. What are the economic powers, the, the uh, natural resources involved, and what is NATO's role in the situation? So Lula is uh, able to provide uh, some useful criticism that I think we were lacking, uh, because even though like other countries in the, re in the region have been making points around this, Lula's voice is a lot louder. That said... I understand Brazil to have had also a bad history in terms of internationalism under Lula. And I think uh, the big example of this was Haiti and like the Brazil participation in Minusta, uh, Brazil participation in this military occupation and like all of the bad consequences we had from this, including what we understand to be military crimes in Haiti. So... Uh, and actually, like one of the generals uh, who's still with Bolsonaro nowadays was with Lula at the time leading the uh, the Brazil part of the Minusta mission, uh, General Heleno. So we need to be quite aware that not everything is roses here. Um, uh, and the way that Lula is going to handle this uh, has to be less in the sense of, you know, uh, military participation, which I think was the big mistake with Haiti, and more in the sense of thinking of like local regional development and South-South cooperation. Uh, so the role of uh, BRICS here, even though it does involve Russia and how this is very complicated right now, is important because Lula is, is opening to, to working with, with South Africa, with China, and uh, with India on the conversation. And then we need to understand, well, what is India nowadays? India under Modi. So very, very complicated. It's not that simple to treat. I'm always afraid of people treating South-South cooperation something very beautiful and genuine because, wow, we're in the global South. We're not in the global North.
we need to understand the governments um, um, that are holding power here. And I think approaching, uh, so Brazil is the B here, approaching the rakes here, everywhere, like you being in South Africa, you know, we're talking here uh, in terms of Africa as a country and this analysis, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to change this in the direction that's like truly in terms of non-alignment, in truly in terms of sovereignty, and in respecting the wishes of marginalized communities and improving their lives, not promoting South-South cooperation as big developmentalist projects that do enrich the capitalist class in each country by saying that, yeah, we're going to loan you this money, but then you have to hire our company here and there, which was an approach that Lula took a lot in the past with our development bank. So Benny Daesi, and right now there's a conversation, Lula made an announcement in Argentina, for example, that he's willing to have our development bank uh, loan money to Argentina in order to um, work on this gas line uh, that connects Argentina to Brazil. And then I'm thinking, well, weren't you just talking about energy transition? <laughs> <laughs> One of the things, and the other thing itself is like, it's just repeating the same process that, oh, yes, we're going to loan you money and then you hire from our companies. And some of these companies later on actually supported the coup, right? So we have to be um, uh, very skeptical of how you handle this. But there are other elements that I think could work well. Like, for example, these were projects focus on energy transition in South America, for example, I think this would be brilliant because we are dealing with the issues around neo-extractivism and, and the issues around green extractivism and these big contradictions. Like Chile is forced right now into a conversation around nationalizing lithium. Um, Bolivia needs to think in this direction, Argentina as well. But we're not talking just about lithium. Lithium is not the only mineral that's key to, to the green transition. We actually need to talk about setting priorities and like making sure that everyone has access to proper renewable energies. Also making sure that this comes from a decentralized uh, position. So we know not looking into the energy matrix the way we used to look into it from the fossil fuel uh, perspective. So these conversations are a lot harder to have and it will require engaging not just with the governments in these other countries, but also listening to the people who are involved, you know, the, the people who live in the sacrifice zones um, and then proposing things that are a little bit outside of the box. And then again, goes back to the role of our own social movements in Brazil, the sewing uh, that thread and like bringing that big um, grassroots internationalism to the table, something that uh, uh, my colleague Breno, Breno Bringeau and I have been talking about uh, in terms of like a new eco-territorial inter internationalism that I think um, could be key to this conversation. And in the end, aligns with something that Lula mentioned the other day, which is that the fact that we need a new wave of progressive internationalism in this non-alignment conversation. What maybe as a concluding remark, what is an eco-territorial internationalism and, and what do you think the main, obviously the energy transition is the main priority, but what is the, the tool or vehicle through which we can advance an alternative imaginary across the global south? Because we were just talking about this before we recorded this conversation, but the, the counter argument that's often pushed by state representatives is that we countries in the global south we need to develop we inevitably have to rely on fossil fuels 
We have to deliver social services to our people, the biggest one being electricity and the possibility of being able to do that in the here and now is slim. The ability to do that in the here and now without some kind of reparation from the global now north uh, makes it impossible. Um, so you just have to deal with that. Um, what is the argument against that that says, even in spite of all of the constraints, there is still a burden of responsibility on countries in the global south to, to protect nature, to protect human life, to protect the environment, and to, to transition away from an extractive model of development that benefits capital accumulation primarily? Yes, uh, this is, well, the challenge of the century. <laughs> and actually the challenge of the decade, if we're actually going to meet targets at all. Uh, the What I understand, like, eco-territorial internationalism uh, to be in something that and I have been working on is that if we need to look into internationalism from a multi-scalar approach that's not fully localist or fully at the state level. And that's been a problem over the past year. So we understand that we're dealing with a different paradigm nowadays. So the World Social Forum, for example, was really well known for talking about another world is possible. But right now, our conversation is about another end of the world is possible. Uh, we need to confront these narratives that come from green capitalism or, uh, or the narratives that are coming from like, um, like fossil capitalism really that, well, this is the only way of handling things. And we're going to the abyss, but we're going to fix a couple of things here and there along the way. We need a very radical direction from this. And part of this comes to understanding that the, some territories are not up for sacrifice. They're not there just, well, too bad, this happens. We need this for the transition. This is one of our main concerns is about the, this expansion of sacrifice zones tied to the green transition, mostly around extractivism, mostly around minerals, but we also understand that to be part of the conversation around how things are discard, discarded. We're talking about um, a huge amount of waste in this planet as well. That's also tied to this imperial mode of living right now uh, in uh, the way that the, the transition conversations uh, have been handled. So like the electric vehicle being part of this. But when we talk about the energy side of this and, and electricity, the governments themselves in, in the global south would usually say this because of their anti-imperialist stance, but also, well, acknowledging there are historical differences here, historical responsibilities. And I like the way that um, Femi Otayo puts this in terms of like in his book, Reconsidering Reparations, that it's not just historical responsibilities, it's historical liabilities. So obviously reparations are really important, but I have this feeling that governments and including movements and entities still understand reparations as, well, grants. Give us money. And that's it. When reparations go, they go a lot deeper in terms of changing infrastructure, physical infrastructure, but also the infrastructure of the political economy. You know, mm -hmm. where jobs are created, what kind of jobs, uh, where people have more access to education, where people don't. And then we understand that climate transition as part of a larger ecological transition, it's not just about carbon. 
And we need to get rid of this carbon tunnel vision that's still very common, including in the climate justice movement. And by doing that, we'll be able to connect uh, these little dots. I do think that we're in a better position in Brazil right now to contribute to this because we are not under an ecocidal government anymore. But I also think, and this is something I wrote in my, in my piece for Africa as a country, that Lula really needs to raise the bar here because time is of the essence. <laughs> we can't just go around saying that, oh, at least we're not killing the Amazon every day anymore. It, we need to rebuild the Amazon and the other biomes, and we need to transition fast. And even though Brazil, Brazil's electri electricity matrix is considered to be mostly renewable and advanced around the world because of hydropower, the hydropower has come with consequences. We can't just go repeating that. And Brazil is still investing a lot in, in terms of uh, oil and gas mostly for exports, and that means having a completely different approach to our national oil company, and it means uh, pegging every time that, yes, we still need this to, development, uh, to develop because we still need income from this. Well, peg this income to the transition. And something that I hope um, comes through within the next years is a proper transition project around public policy in the country. That's not just about, yes, we're going to negotiate better in terms of adaptation and mitigation. No, we're actually going to transition things uh, from in, like from the inside to the outside and how this is going to um, work also depends uh, on these relationships with our neighbors. Sabrina Fernandez, thank you so much for coming to the program. Thanks, Will, it was a pleasure. If you need a reminder of who I've been chatting with, I've been talking to Sabrina Fernandez, who is a Brazilian sociologist, eco-socialist organizer and communicator. She's a postdoctoral fellow with the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung and the person behind the Radical Left Education Project, Dessa Onze, and as of the last two weeks has been at the University of Guadalajara during a fellowship. Is that right, Sabrina? Yes, I'm with a fellowship with Carlos here at the Center for Advanced Latin American Studies, now working on transition uh, topics. So very well, happy to be able to talk a little bit about it. Exactly. And, and a conversation I hope we, we keep going. It's a, it's a core part of Africa as a country's work now to think through the transition for, for Africa, but the global south in general. Um, so would love to hear your thoughts in future. But thank you for coming onto the program today. And thank you to you our listeners and viewers for tuning in. A reminder, we release episodes every week that explores politics and culture on the African continent from a left-wing perspective, as well as politics from the international scale from an African perspective. Catch you next week. Thank you for tuning in. Bye-bye.